don't forget, you're going to die. Hello, welcome to the We Croak podcast. I am your host, Hansa Bergwall. And thank you so much for joining us again today. Uh, and I would love to ask you to do one thing for us. If you've been enjoying uh, the We Croak podcast for a while, share your favorite episode with one person. Uh, we're really proud of what we're doing here, having conversations about uh, death, as well as all the things we don't talk about enough. And uh, we'd love to reach more people. So help us do that. Other ways you can support the podcast include going to our Patreon page. Uh, that really helps us to uh, make sure we put out great episodes for you, as well as downloading our app, the WeCroak app, and um, you know becoming a Leap subscriber there. Uh, the full membership is great, too. Uh, so yeah, definitely share an episode with, uh, one person, uh, if you've been enjoying it. And today I have another fantastic conversation for you. It is with Emily Agoski, uh, PhD. Her book is called Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And I was interested in speaking with her because I just thought she was really interesting. She started as a sex educator, and I thought someone coming from that world might have some really interesting things to say about stress and burnout. And uh, boy, was I right. One of the things we talk about in you know, mindfulness circles is the weird ways that everything is connected. And this book is a lot like that, connecting our stress with some of our big ideas about the world and um how life works and um, how they can really be a huge part about stressing us out. In particular, um, she talks a lot about patriarchy and its connection to, uh, to stress and the demands we put on ourselves. And I think it's really interesting and I really hope you uh, enjoy this conversation. So without any further introduction, um, here's that conversation. Dr. Emily Nagoski, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So we're here today to talk about your book, uh, Burnout, uh, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, uh, which I enjoyed very much. Oh, hooray. And your book has uh, a rather surprising, or uh, maybe it shouldn't be surprising, but a premise you don't hear very often. I often think about books about stress relief or combating burnout to be in the category of like, breathe better, you know, find your inner calm, go within. Um, sure. Selfie, healthy, self-care. Mm-hmm. All that sort of goop style stuff that is very popular today. Uh-huh. And you have a different approach that I'd say is a bit more assertive at going at the source and root causes. Would you like to talk about that as a way of introing us into the topic? Sure. I mean, there are a couple of different levels where we do things differently. I co-authored the book with my twin sister, Amelia, who is a choral conductor. Um, and some people are not aware that classical music is as misogynist a space as we usually think of STEM fields as being. So while she was in grad school in this doctoral program, where she remains the only woman ever to finish this specific program, um, she was hospitalized twice with undiagnosable, we're not sure, it's just stress, go home and relax. They say to a woman who is 
in grad school in a doctoral program where she is actively unwelcome because of her body. Also, she has three part-time jobs and is helping to raise three teenage stepchildren and, oh, has a two-hour commute each way to grad school. But just relax. <laughs> so one of the ways that our work is different is we acknowledge that the pressures put particularly on it's a girl type bodies is different and intense and our lives are not structured to allow us to relax. And the way our culture has framed self-care or stress management is as it's another thing to put on your list. It's another thing you can fail at. Great. Great. So like raise the stepkids, go to grad school, have the jobs, also be a wife to your husband and relax. It is an inherent contradiction. So one of the ways that we're different is that we acknowledge that when we ask people to participate in strategies to manage the stress in their bodies, we are not ignoring the fact that a lot of other voices in the world say they want people to manage their stress, but actually are just going to get in their way. Right. Uh, one of the ways that we talk about this is with uh, a thing we call human giver syndrome. This is language that we took, we borrowed from Kate Mann's book, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. Kate Mann is a moral philosopher and she posits a world, this is a black and white simplification of it, but posits a world where there are two kinds of humans. There are human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity. See, it's right there in the name, human beings, a moral obligation to be as competitive, entitled and acquisitive as they have to in order to maximize their full potential. And then there are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity, their time, their attention, their patience, their smiles, their love, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, certainly their own well-being and sleep, sometimes their lives sacrificed on the altar of other people's comfort and convenience. And just sort of at a cultural script level, which one are the women? Yeah, it's it's a very good point. And I found myself um, finding examples all throughout everything I've observed in my life for many, many years. Oh, like what? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I have a number of uh, women friends who I love dearly, who uh, I would call them, you know, when we were getting to know each other in college, for example, um, very strident uh, feminists. They uh, were definitely what you would call today maybe woke about these issues around patriarchy and stuff like that. You know, years go by and, um, uh, you know, they end up, you know, married to lovely guys and me and my husband go and visit them. And, you know, we're kind of seeing how stressed out they are, how much, you know, they're doing maybe 80% of the work around the house maybe also earning more money, but like they've just slipped into these patterns that, you know, me and my husband look at each other, like what happened here and how? Um, and yet um, somehow knowing these issues isn't always enough to um, not fall into some really ingrained patterns or so it seems. Exactly. Because these are moral issues. They are not intellectual. They're not even just 
social or emotional. They are moral. We feel like failures when we fall short of the ideal. It's not that we have failed at a task. We are failures and deserve to be punished. And if no one else will punish us, we'll just go ahead and beat the shit out of ourselves. The uh, definition of success that Amelia and I invented for this thing we made, human giver syndrome, is that uh, we have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others. And if we dare fall short of being pretty, happy, calm, generous, or attentive to the needs of others, like for example, uh, we dare to get adequate sleep instead of being the one who gets up in the middle of the night to attend to other people's needs, how dare we? How selfish of us. Whereas that narrative is not there for men as a script. Let me be clear, it is not this simple in terms of gender. Amelia and I are both married to cis het dudes who are natural human givers. They escaped the script that they were handed when they were born that said they needed to be this other thing. And my husband would give everything he has in support of me and my work. And the dynamic between us is really different than it would be in a dynamic between a human being and a human giver. Um, between two givers, like we are each watching each other's boundaries and limits and making sure the other person doesn't give so much that they have nothing left. Like we care about each other's well-being and are watching each other's so that we're helping, each of us is helping the other one not fall off the cliff. Whereas between a giver and a human being, the more the giver gives, the more entitled the human being feels to just take whatever the giver gives. Um, and then the giver gives more and more until eventually there is nothing left. Yeah. And I think that gets to the issue of, you know, obviously, I think you wrote this book with women in mind, but reading it as a man, I feel like I still got a lot from it of just thinking about boundaries and when to give and when to um, when to receive. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, um, do you, you think that all people, men as well, can benefit from your ideas about burnout and uh, gender and stress? Oh, heck yes. Most of it is about biology. And our bodies are, in these terms, way more similar than they are different. Um, we talk about the gender stuff. Chapter four is about the patriarchy because that is an extra layer of stressor that a feminine perceived body experiences as it tries to travel through the world. It's like we have extra pollution in our air compared to a masculine coded person. Right, right. Makes a lot of sense. So let's actually back up just a little bit to some of the biology in your book about you know, what stress is, how it happens. And uh, I think you have a helpful phrase called kind of, kind of completing the stress cycle. Right. Of just how, you know, because stress is inevitable, normal, healthy even. Right. But how we deal with it uh, can either lead toward burnout or toward, you know, replenishment. So can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So uh, the stress itself, as you say, is not the problem. It is getting stuck in the middle of a stress response cycle that's the problem. And this is the language people don't get, even though like, why don't we get this language? Um, so all of our emotions 
all of our bodily processes are cycles. We are designed to oscillate through like a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then go back through it. Digestion, a really clear beginning, a middle, and an end. We're not designed to eat all the time or poop all the time. We're designed to go all the way through the cycle. Sleep is another cycle. We're not designed to rest all the time or to be active all the time. We are designed to oscillate daily through a cycle of rest into action, back to rest, back to action. The same is true of stress. It has a beginning when you're exposed to the potential threat, a middle where your body responds with the adrenaline and cortisol and the fight or flight response that many of us are familiar with, and an end. And the end comes not when the stressor goes away, but when the physiology of the stress response has an opportunity to come to its natural end instead of sitting sustained. Um, so like in the environment where we evolved, if you're being chased by a lion, if you're being chased by a lion, there's really only two possible outcomes there, right? Like either you get eaten by the lion, in which case none of the rest of this matters, or you manage to escape, right? So you run all the way back to your village and someone sees you coming and they wave you into the door and you both stand with your shoulder against the door and the lion roars and charges. And this is a very determined lion, but eventually it gives up and it walks away and you watch the lion walk away. And you look at this person who just helped save your life and you feel glad to be alive and you love your friends and family and the sun seems to shine brighter because your body has moved all the way through the stress response into the relaxation response. Unfortunately, uh, we are almost never chased by lions these days. Instead, our stressors are things like taxes and traffic and the patriarchy. In fact, the white supremacist, cis heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative, late capitalist society that we walk through. Um, so to take a simple example like traffic, we all know the feeling of like being stuck trying to get someplace, like you're trying to get home, traffic is incredibly slow and you're just, your shoulders are trying to be earrings, your body is pumping out all the same chemicals that it pumps out when you're being chased by a lion, but you can't run, you just gotta like wait and get through it. And when you get to your home, do you suddenly, like you have dealt with the stressor, right? Like you got to the destination you were going for, do you suddenly feel like glad to be alive and you love your friends and family and the sun seems to shine brighter just because you made it home? Uh, no. <laughs> no, you still feel stressed and unhappy and you're probably going to take it out on the first mammal you see when you walk in the door. And that's because you dealt with the stressor, the thing that activated the stress, but you didn't process the stress itself. There is a gap between what our biological organism recognizes as safety and the external cues that actually indicate that a stressor has gone away. Your body has no idea what filing your taxes means. Your body has no idea what having like an adult responsible conversation with someone you like deeply hate and who deeply hates you at work. There's no idea what that responsible grown-up conversation means. It knows what like beating the crap out of someone means. It knows what running means. It knows, and the great thing, so you're not allowed to beat the crap out of people pretty much under any circumstances, but your body, fortunately, 
It doesn't know what taxes are, but it does know imagination. In the same way that a stress response can be activated by a thought, like thinking about looming fascism <laughs> activates a stress yeah, response. Yeah. Like your heart starts to beat faster, your blood pressure goes up. Imagination can activate stress responses. It can also complete stress responses. So after your like very grown up meeting with the person that you hate at work, uh, you can like go home, lie in a dark room and viscerally imagine pounding the crap out of that person. You're allowed to imagine anything you want. And the key to making imagination work as a way to complete the stress response cycle is to let your body be actively involved. Let your muscles get tense, ball your fists up, make your jaw as tense and hard as it would be if you were beating the crap out of this person. And you might cry while you're doing it. You might feel afraid of how big the feelings are, but your imagination will move you through the cycle of your stress response and it'll end. So let me just make sure that I understand. So I had uh, someone I was working with a little while back who was kind of a bully, really stressed me out, definitely had a stress response. So your recommendation is to not do it, but visualize, you know, punching him in the face while I move my body, maybe get a punching bag so that my body has like a fight flu response. And then by the next day, I'll be calm. Sure. You don't even need to do that. But yeah, do do both. Okay. That was actually Amelia's breakthrough. Because... Um, uh, the because when you're being chased by a lion, the thing you do is run. The most efficient strategy for completing the stress response cycle is physical activity, but it doesn't work for everyone. Um, partly because people's bodies vary, but also because not everybody has access to the resources they need to be able to move their body in safety. If you're trans and go to the gym, you want to use the locker room, you could literally be putting yourself in danger in order to get the physical activity. So physical activity is one of the ones that works differently for different people. But for Amelia, she was on, uh, you know, the elliptical machine at the gym. And she like we had learned about imagination and she imagined herself as Godzilla stomping on the parking lot and the bursar's office and her advisor's office. And when she got done with that workout, the combined imagination plus moving her body for the first time in her life, she had the thing that people call runner's high. She felt elated and empowered. And it was the imagination that did it. Lead me through what you would recommend as a healthy sort of get you all the way through the stress cycle response to something that's an abstract stress, such as oh, um, crushing student loan debt. Let's say you have $200,000 in debt and a thirty or $40,000 salary high expenses, you don't know how you'll ever pay it. Uh, that's pretty bad lion. It's never leaving your door. You're the only gazelle for that lion. What do you do? This is the good news about this reality, this truth about separating the process of dealing with your stress from the process of dealing with your stressor. Just like having a conversation with a coworker you cannot stand, like you dealt with the stressor, but your process of dealing with the stress in your body happens separately. So your process of dealing with an abstract stress and financial stress isn't, I don't feel like that's very abstract. That is immediate survival stress. Um, and the way you deal with it is the way you deal with all stress. The stress is very largely the same. And so your ways of dealing with it 
are largely the same because that stressor is there every day and there's no end in sight. It is really good news that the process of dealing with the stress is separate from the process of dealing with the stressor. Because if it's there every day, you're going to stay in a state, you're going to be locked, trapped in the stress response. If you think you cannot relax, you cannot deal with the stress until the stressor is gone. That will literally kill you. Fortunately, you can deal with the stress even while the stressor is still there. And you do that with all of the evidence-based strategies, physical activity, imagination. Others include rest, especially sleep. I've got a whole hour-long talk on sleep. Don't get me started, but uh, let's talk about the ways that culture interferes with sleep, grind culture, and also human giver syndrome get in the way of sleep. A big old cry is an excellent way to complete the stress response cycle. Not everyone uh, intuitively knows how to cry in a way that completes a stress response cycle. Um, the secret is that you don't think about the thing that is activating the stress. Like if you start crying, feeling overwhelmed, thinking about the debt and your financial situation, you turn your attention away from that, away from the stressor and toward the sensations that are happening in your face and body. And you just neutrally notice the tension in your face and the heat and what fluids are coming out of which orifices in your face and like what is going on with your digestion as you cry and what's going on with the muscles all over your body as you cry. You just neutrally notice what's going on with your body as you cry and your body will just finish the stress response cycle. And yeah, the stressor will still be there. That's okay. You are now in a slightly better state to deal with your life. You'll be a nicer person to be around. You will be healthier and live longer. And frankly, if in the situation that you're describing of like an enormous amount of debt and huge income inequality in America, to pause and rest and care for your own body is a revolutionary act. It is a rebellion against the white supremacist, cis-heteropatriarchal, rapidly exploitative, late capitalist system that traps you in this debt. Okay, so let's make that case directly, because I feel like a lot of people who were just using that example again of crushing student loan debt, maybe they're like, why did I go to this expensive college or... Like, how am I going to pay this off? It feels like, you know, a debt, financial, it sucks. But make the case that, you know, as you say in the book, the real enemy is patriarchy and uh, that that's an important thing to think about when dealing with, you know, stresses that are financial that don't necessarily immediately seem like um, a part of how we structure uh, society around men, women, uh, the rich, the poor, things like that. Yeah, so... The questions that you were just asking, like, why did I go to this expensive school or how am I ever going to get out of this debt? Those are questions about dealing with the stressor, the thing that caused the stress, right? Yes. And everything I'm recommending is about dealing with the stress in your body, right? Correct. So if we add on top of crushing student debt, living in a world uh, where the color, shape, size, gender of your body increases the stress that you're experiencing each and every day, 
that makes it only more important that you process the stress out of your body each and every day so that you are well enough to go live in a world that is toxically trying to poison you every day. Um, the, the rat brain research example of this, uh, so they, it's called chronic low-level stress, even though it's hard to think of it as low-level stress. What they do to rats is they, you know, pour water on their nests so that when the rat comes back from doing research things, it finds water on its nest, or it tilts the cage 45 degree angles, or it uh, turns on a flashing light all night. These are stressors that are never going to hurt the rat, right? The rat is not in any danger of dying, but is chronic stress, like it can never fully relax, right? So here we have a rat that has elevated uh, stress hormones sort of all the time. It is not in control of its environment. And then we're going to do a forced swim test, which is, uh, you can tell by the name, not great. Uh, so what they do is they drop the rat in a tank of water. Rats can swim, but they don't love it. Um, so they swim and swim and swim and try to find a place where they can stop swimming and they swim and swim and swim. And the question is, how long does a rat keep swimming before it gives up? And it turns out that when you force a rat to swim, when it is experiencing chronic stress after about a week, its swim time drops in half. So we lose our ability, mammals, rats in this case, lose their ability to keep trying when they are in a state of constant low-level stress. The weird thing is that it takes twice as long for a female rat's swim time to drop in half. And it never gets as low as the male rats. There is a biological argument that we would need more evidence to support fully that it is in uh, female mammals' biology to hashtag persist. Okay, that that's really interesting. Any idea why that might be? It would all be speculation. Don't know. Maybe because they're the ones who take care of the babies. Uh, when it comes to rats, there's a very precise sex differentiation in caretaking behavior. And if a female rat gave up then it's not just her survival, but her infant's survival at stake, maybe. And yet, you know, these low-level stress events can really affect sort of, uh, I guess our, call it maybe a bank account of, uh, of energy to spend on all the obstacles and challenges in your life. If you're facing uh, systemic stuff all the time, you know, and you have an opportunity to say, um, as I think you're, you mentioned your sister does, make a, a really important um, symphony or um, something like that. It can be hard to muster the same amount of energy to do that. And that's, that's kind of the point, correct? Yeah, it's you feel defeated because you are being beaten harder, longer. Yeah. Like, basically, the moral of the story is, if it feels like it's too hard... That's, that's because it's too hard. It's not because you are weak or there's something inefficient or inadequate about you. It's not that you need better time management. It's not that you need like more lists. You don't need better strategies and techniques for being prepared to manage everything. You need less bullshit to manage. You need to be able to go to work without being sexually harassed. You need to be able to walk down the street at night without fearing for your safety. 
that would be a reduction in stressors that reduced your stress. But the process of dealing with those stressors, sexual harassment and sexual violence and violence of all kinds targeted to women, um, is a stressor. And the process of dealing with those stressors is the kinds of activism that we've been seeing for going on a hundred years now. And that's really important. And people who are engaged in that kind of activism must also, as a second level of their activism, practice self-care and community care so that they stay well enough to keep fighting these systems. And one of the things that's important about the real enemy, so this comes from uh, The Hunger Games, Katniss Everdeen volunteers to go into this game created by the dystopian near future kind of dystopian government where children are recruited into a game that is televised. They go into the stadium and they are required on television to kill each other until only one is alive. And at a certain point, her mentor, Katniss's mentor says to her, remember who the real enemy is. And she goes into the game and she's fighting for her life, full fight or flight, bow and arrow. She hears a sound, she turns with a bow and arrow and there's a guy there and she doesn't know if he wants her dead or if he's on her side and he says, Katniss, remember who the real enemy is. Because who is the real enemy in this game they're being forced to play? It is the game itself. It is the government, the system that set them up to have to fight against each other. And so she raises her bow and arrow and she shoots, shoots directly into the glass dome of the stadium. She shatters the game itself. Remember who the real enemy is means remember that this other person who is also fighting in the context of human giver syndrome is not the real enemy. The enemy is the system that set you up as enemies in the first place. All right. So I want to talk about two competing narratives for dealing with stress. Uh, and the first one I'd love you to address is sort of the just breathe one we brought up before. Because I think for a lot of people, you're dealing with stress and someone tells you, you can just, you know, find, you know, an hour, go breathe you know, in your room, maybe say a few positive affirmations. <laughs> and right. that's something you can control. You can do it. Whereas, like, if you're heading to an office and, um, you know, you can't necessarily control whether there's um, a bully there, someone who might sexually assault you, uh, be misogynistic, homophobic, transphobic, whatever it is. Um, and taking on... Racist, Islamophobic. Sure, there's there's so many of them. So the, many ways people can suck. The activism uh, to deal with these problems can feel, at least a lot of the time, uh, ridiculously overwhelming because so much of the pieces are outside of our control. Yeah. Yeah, the scale of the problem is far beyond the scale of what any individual can heal. So I guess make the case for me of why, even if none of us can do it alone. We still need to engage with this idea of activism or social justice to deal with our stress. Oh, you don't. I absolutely do not think that anyone has an obligation to try to help somebody else not oppress them. What I think a person has the moral obligation to do is to care for themselves 
in a bubble of love where they are protected so that they stay alive in the face of other people oppressing them. And if they choose to participate in the activism, great. And that activism comes at a cost. And in fact, I would argue that instead of thinking about like going out and doing activism, for people who are experiencing oppression and the more intersections of oppression you're experiencing, the more this is true, just your daring to prioritize your sleep, your rest, your joy, your pleasure is in itself activism against a system that values only your labor and will not care if you die. There is a, a if, if anybody listening to this does anything at all in response to hearing me talk, I hope they will follow the NAP Bishop. The NAP Ministry is Trisha Hersey. She is uh, an actual minister who creates public napping installations for Black people in America as commentary on an action against the fact that this country was built on labor stolen from the bodies of Black people on this continent who were themselves stolen from their homes. For us to center the rest and well-being is to say that we recognize that for generations, the rest, pleasure, and joy of Black people in this country was perceived as theft from the white people who enslaved them, right? Like your rest is theft from the economy. How dare you? So follow Trisha Hersey. She says these things more articulately than I ever could. She has a Patreon. You should give her money every month. She has a book that's coming out next year, 2022. She does uh, Instagram lives that make me cry when she reads poetry, saying that, like, you have permission to rest. All of us are fucked. And this is like a multi-year project of deprogramming yourself from capitalist white supremacist grind culture that says that uh, your value can be measured in how hard you work. Yeah. We built something new for the first time in a really long time. Uh, tell us about it. Yes. We Croak Leap's new feature is called Daily Review. It's our big new addition to We Croak that we're doing this summer. It is a tool to track your, your goals and, and aspirations on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, here's how it works. You pick some things that you want to make progress on um, every day. Things like um, reaching out to friends or staying in touch with relatives. And once you select these things, the WeCroak app will send you a little reminder um, at a time you like to say, hey, this is an opportunity to check in. You know, have you lived up to those statements that you, um, you put in? And you could say yes, you could say no, and the app will keep track um, as time goes on about how well you did living, living up to those things. So it's a really neat tool. We're super excited for um, you all to try it. It's the big addition to Leap um, for, for the year. So um, please do give it a go. And if you haven't tried Leap, um, you'll uh, be very happy to hear that we do a whole month of Leap free. So if you are uh, super, uh, super calculated, you can get 31 free days of uh, Leap and daily review and all the other great features um, in Leap as well. So Hansa, you've um, been using daily review for a while. Have, uh, have you been enjoying it? 
Yeah, it actually started as uh, trying to do an old uh, stoic mindfulness tool, also called the Daily Review, on a pen and paper where you just look over your day. And it was wonderful. I really loved how I felt doing it when I would remember to do it. So this was inspired by that tool, just to have something, my phone sort of remind me and to take out a lot of the, uh, you know, the extra work, you know, just like, what are the things that I care about most in this life that I've selected that I want to hold myself accountable to just to, just to look at the list every day. Did I do it? And, you know, one moment in the evening to say, yes, awesome. Pat myself on the back. Ah, no, I'll have to get up a little bit earlier to meditate tomorrow or, or do whatever it was that I missed. And I'm really loving it. It's, it's feeling like, uh, like kind of taking back the, the measurement of life. You know, sometimes if you're not measuring yourself, you can get caught up and like, did I get the promotion or, you know, does that person like me or do I have the right body? But it's really great to like, look at your values and what you did for them every day. Cause that feels better than, um, anything else. Absolutely. Like, you know, so many things in the weaker gap, you know, what you get out of it is, you know, what you put into it and being able to put your yourself into it, we think is such a such an amazing and important thing. So please do give it a try now available on uh, the iPhone version of the WeCroak app. And we'd love to hear um, your thoughts on it. And uh, with that, let's hop back into the conversation at hand. So one of the things that I love about sort of the death mindfulness stuff that inspired this podcast is it's always about coming back to living in the real world and not some fantasy place where we're immortal or death can't happen anytime. And this feels like a similar idea. It's not up to you to fix the world. It's just up to you to live in it and recognize it as it is right now and say, you know, these ideas stop with me. Um, I'm going to prioritize some yes. of my self-care. I'm going to figure out another way or live with this in, in some way and see it for what it is. I want to make sure we're careful with the phrase self-care because uh, the basics of what I'm talking about, like, you know, getting physical activity and getting enough rest and taking time to cry. Let me also add that belly laughs are just as effective as crying for completing the stress response cycle with imagination and creative self-expression. These are all strategies for self-care, but as Amelia and I were writing the book and reading all of this pretty intense science over and over, like, you know, you read affective neuroscience, you have to learn more about the mesolimbic cortex than you ever wanted to know. And after you do all this work, it turns out the answer is love. It's kindness and compassion and turning toward each other's difficult feelings with patience and courage and love. <laughs> So the cure for burnout isn't self-care. It has to be all of us caring for each other so that when you get home from a hard day and say, look, I have a really big deal thing happening tomorrow and I have to get enough rest. The people you share a home with don't just say, okay, and then still you're the person who has to wake up in the middle of the night. They say, okay, and then they cordon off the time and space and resources necessary for you to get the rest your body requires. They care for your well-being as well as you care for theirs. We call it the bubble of love. So it's not really just self-care. It's recognizing your own body's needs and getting help from your bubble of love actually to get those needs met. 
And maybe editing the people in your life until you have the right boundaries of people who will care for you. To some extent, yes. Um, And one of the questions we're asked most frequently is actually, what if you don't have people like that in your life? Um, And our first flippant answer was, you just need better people in your life. Ha ha. And then we thought about our own experience. So yes, we're identical twins. We were raised in the same household, but we were raised in like a super dysfunctional family of origin uh, with a narcissistic alcoholic father who the rules in a household like that are you do not talk about the feelings. You don't talk about anything. Like there was a 20 foot thick glass wall between me and Amelia. We never in our lives talked about any of the feelings. It's not that we didn't turn toward each other's difficult feelings with kindness, compassion, courage, and patience. We did not recognize each other's distress until we were reading all this stuff about the mesolimbic frickin' cortex. And it turned out the answer is love. And if we were going to practice what we were preaching in this book, we had to. And so we did. We started telling each other the stories of how isolated we felt in our childhood and how much we wanted each other in our lives, but weren't allowed to. And we took that 20 foot glass wall and little by little on each side, we just hammered away at it. Was it easy? No. Was it fun? Not even a little bit. Was it worth it? I have a sister now in a way I never did before. So if nobody ever reads Burnout and like it's a New York Times bestseller, it's doing very well. That's really exciting for me. But if like the book had been published and no one ever picked it up, it would still have changed my life because it taught me the skills I needed to have a sister. I love that. Congratulations on both the bestselling book and more importantly, the improved relationship with your sister. Thanks. They were both really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I want to get to the second competing narrative. And I will preface this by saying that these are not things that I believe, but I am online. So I know there is a uh, strident new kind of, um, sometimes they call it like a men's rights movement. Sometimes they call it like a return to classic, you know, Judeo-Christian values, but it posits that um, women should embrace their quote-unquote natural place, (laughs) which is subservient (laughs) to men, and that they will be happier with uh, a man uh, as the head of the household, um, and um, that they should defer to those decisions and not fight, you know, this overwhelming system of misogyny, but instead accept it, embrace it. Yeah, he for God and she for him. And, you know, enjoy having the man do the work and um, cleaning the house uh, and there's all those things. So how is that not the better response to dealing with stress? You know, people do say that acceptance of what is, is, you know, one of the the strategies that people deal with, that helps people deal with stress. So, yeah, I have have so many ways I want to answer that question. My first uh, least serious answer is tell that to my husband because I am the primary breadwinner in our family. <laughs> and if I stopped working, like it would, he would have to change his life a lot in ways he does not want to change his life. So that's one thing. Two, you use the word acceptance, which I think is a, a really important uh, 
terrible mistranslation of a Buddhist idea. Um, we've just chose this word acceptance as meaning this thing of like recognizing what is true. Um, I'm gonna come back to that in a second, acceptance. Uh, the first is <laughs> that our natural biological roles exist. So on the day a person is born, most of us, somebody looks at our genitals and makes a declaration. They say, it's a boy or it's a girl. And on that day, we are handed a user's manual for our body and a script of like what kinds of emotions are available to us and what kinds of uh, jobs we'll want to do and what our relationship with children is going to be, who we're going to love, what kind of sex we're going to enjoy or not. And uh, all of that is, as they say, culturally constructed. None of it has anything to do with biology. Our genitals do not predict what kinds of toys we're going to want to play with. There may be differences inborn into women and men, but one, the research is way not there because you have to measure it in newborn infants in order to see what's actually different. Because if you measure the brains of adult cisgender men and women, what you are measuring is mostly what happens to a brain that's treated like a man or a woman, which is not the same as measuring what's sort of innate in a male brain and a female brain. So apart from the, you know, childbirth breastfeeding thing that comes along with most people with a uterus and a vagina, not all, um, then there's a biological something that happens there that has to be taken into account when we recognize that everybody gets the same right to choose like the work they want to do. And a workplace just needs to accommodate the fact that some of the people who work there have uteruses and are going to use those uteruses to gestate a human. And then they're going to have a human who needs constant adult attention for the next five years. So the whole like innate biological role, that's nonsense. People vary. <laughs> so that, was that a compelling enough description of how bullshit the idea of innate biological differences is? How little evidence there is for it? Okay, yes. And what about the competing but similar name of that, you know, this sort of natural order exists, but it's divinely ordained that maybe people come in in all sorts of ways, but God wants them to be men in charge. Yeah, I have I have no response to that. If that is what you believe, I do not have, I'm not going to be the person who convinces you otherwise. I'm a cisgender woman, but a sex educator and an atheist. So like, you're not going to believe anything I have to say anyway. Okay. You will not even have started listening to this. No, probably not. And I'm not, one of the ways I practice self-care is by not arguing with people with whom I have no chance of making any positive difference. What about the, the idea that sort of accepting misogyny, not just that the world is misogynistic and you have to make your boundaries with that, but that your role is to be subservient to men is a better way of stress relief um, than the opposite. This one gets really complicated, which brings me back to the idea of acceptance. It's a bad translation. What people tend to hear with acceptance is uh, acquiescence and surrender to 
like, okay, so it is the case that the world is patriarchal and misogynistic. Kate Mann defines misogyny as the law enforcement branch of the patriarchy. It's the part that punishes us for being women who misbehave. Like, that's true. That's the world I live in. And a lot of women, not even knowingly, make the choice to play the game, to try hard, to be rewarded in that system and avoid punishment in that system, which, is, of course, is going to involve... Um, separating themselves and punishing other women who don't play the game. Um, and acceptance can also be like the rat who gives up swimming because they're never going to find land. And so they stop trying. That is the technical term for that is learned helplessness. And that is not actually what acceptance has to mean. In the last, if you're, if people are like, where can I read Emily talking about this stuff? It's the last chapter of Burnout, where we talk about uh, the mad woman in the attic, the part of yourself that tries to manage the unmanageable gap between who you truly are and who the world expects you to be. Acceptance can be acknowledging what is true without liking it, without believing that it should be true. But like recognizing that this is the state of the world, I am going to be living my life swimming upstream every single day. And I accept that. I'm not going to get mad about the fact that this is so hard for me. I'm going to honor and embrace the fact that a lot of people before me have done this too. And I and have made it a little bit easier for me. And my doing it every day makes it a little bit easier for the people coming behind me. Right. The whole uh, positive sort of mental wellness benefits of connecting to meaning through your acceptance of the situation, if not the... Which is chapter three. <laughs> meaning and purpose is uh, the research is really bad. Like it's a very low quality research. I understand sometimes why people have trouble taking psychology research uh, seriously. Like they cannot define the term meaning without using the word meaning <laughs> or saying that it's the thing that isn't any of these other things. That's, that's my favorite one. Well, let's start with how, how do you make meaning out of uh, your life and your work? Our technical definition is uh, that meaning is made. It's not something you find. It is something you make when you connect with something larger than yourself. You're something larger. And your something larger can be your family. It can be your work. It can be your garden, whatever. It can be Star Trek. Like whatever your something larger is, when you connect with it, you make meaning for yourself. And it is an important nutrient. Like green vegetables are really important, but just the existence of green vegetables isn't enough. You have to engage with the green vegetables. So the existence of your something larger isn't enough. You have to engage with your something larger. My personal something larger, I am fortunate to know because I spent 10 years trying to figure it out, uh, is to teach women in particular to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And any day that I get to do that is a day that I nourish myself and make it a little easier to move through the world myself. And I know the work I'm doing is making it easier for all the people coming behind me. I love that. Me too. It sounds like a good wake up feeling proud of what you want to be kind of story. Yeah. I listened to your episode with Rebecca Goldstein. Oh yeah. She's wonderful. And, um, 
so I'm going to mention mental health issues and suicide at this point. Um, I have lived with depression for low these 20 plus years, and I have absolutely had little phases of such deep, dark depression that I would think about dying. And I would get to the planning part and I would never actually attempt because I have never thought I didn't matter. Even when I wasn't getting attention from others, I knew that I had something to contribute that mattered because I had a something larger to engage with just because my brain chemistry and maybe some aspects of the world were barriers between me and engaging with my something larger. I never lost contact with it and I never lost sight of it. Um, Amelia and I use Moana a lot. It came out in the year that we were finishing the book and we love it. It's problematic. Like it's Disney. It has its problems, but look, save us Lin-Manuel Miranda. You are only hope. Um, so when you analyze that story from like a Jungian lens, where you assume that every aspect of the story is a part of the main character. So like Maui in the story is a part of Moana and the ocean is a part of Moana and Tefiti, the goddess of life and abundance is a part of Moana and Tika, the lava monster is a part of Moana. What we end up with is a story of a girl going on a journey inside herself to confront her own worst enemy which is Teka the lava monster, the part of her that's going to throw balls of lava at her. And the whole point of her journey is she's supposed to restore the heart of Tefiti, which is this glowing green stone uh, with a swirl in the center of it. And when at the end she finally sees Teka the lava monster, she notices a swirl on the surface of Teka's chest. And she realizes that Moana is holding in her hand the heart of her own worst enemy. And if she can turn toward her with kindness and compassion and patience and courage, she can unmake her own worst enemy. So she sings to a lava monster. I have crossed the horizon to find you. Imagine engaging with your own internal critic in this way. Imagine if like that mean part of you is yelling at you and telling you about all the ways you've failed. The mad woman in your attic is like, you have failed to be X, Y, and Z. The world is demanding that you do this. And so you're being punished with that. You turn toward that cruel voice and you say, I have crossed a horizon to find you. I know your name. They, the world that's insisting on these things, have stolen the heart from inside you. But this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. And she puts the heart of Tefiti into the chest of her worst enemy and the lava and stone crumble away and reveal Tefiti, the goddess of life and abundance. All of which is a long way of talking about how to deal with self-criticism in the face of losing connection with your something larger. Um, but here's the thing. So Moana feels called by the ocean to go on this journey. Moana is both the Hawaiian and the Maori word for ocean. This is not, they're not trying to hide the Jungian analysis of this story. It's right there. Her name is Moana. She is called by the ocean. She is called by herself. And in the, the black moment of the story, she tells the ocean to choose someone else. She can't do it. And then her grandmother 
the crazy village lady, who's the only person who believes in Moana, comes to her in a vision and says, remember who you are. And Moana remembers like all of her ancestors. She remembers her sense of calling. And she says, but the call wasn't out there at all. It's inside me. It's like the tide, always falling and rising. I will carry you here in my heart. You'll remind me that come what may, I know the way. That is the lesson that meaning does not come, your something larger is not out there. You can never have it taken away from you because it's inside you. The call was coming from inside the body. Yeah, I'm gonna have to go watch Moana now. Uh. <laughs> oh yeah. Like hashtag problematic, not, not diminishing the ways that people have feelings about it. Sure, sure. Um, I will say this because you've uh, sort of broaching a topic I'm very passionate about. So I will hold forth with one for one second with your uh, permission. It's just, um, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about never giving my measuring stick for how I'm doing to anybody else. And to do that, I need my meaning. Like, well, who do I want to be? And mine is pretty simple. I want to remind people life is precious and short and do whatever they care about now because they might not get tomorrow. And that gives me meaning. And then, you know, the rest is, did I live well? Was I kind? Things like that. And one thing I'm really careful to do is, you know, to think about my life often, maybe with like a daily, um, you know, review at the end of the day, just quickly going through, did I live it well? And that way I never get to the point where it's like, oh, well, over pandemic, I didn't go to the gym. So I got a little bit too, you know, fat or whatever. And I know that people aren't going to like that. Or I didn't succeed at this work thing. And I'm not making enough money. Like all those sort of things we're supposed to be pressing in or other people's judgments, um, sort of Mm -hmm. replacing my own measuring of how I'm doing. Because those aren't my values. Those aren't necessarily what I care about. But they can sneak into your head and you can feel like you've failed. They sure do, right? Um, when really you failed other people who might just be in your head, who have totally different values than you, who want you to be something you... They come over and thwack you with their measuring sticks. And yeah, it's just, I think it's absolute insanity to ever give your measuring stick for how you're doing to anybody else. Like it has to be done yourself. And it's important to do it to like, you know, have, you know, standards and aspirations for what kind of person you want to be. Uh, we don't all just want to like, you know completely slack off or be mean or do whatever like we want to you know have Mm -hmm. some progress to make that has to be our progress you know what i mean i uh struggled with this in grad school the whole like live every day um because i was in grad school and it was agony and uh if i were living every day like based on all the things I value and like, I might not get it tomorrow. I, I would have quit grad school because it was terrible. It's very hard and unpleasant. Um, so instead I made up a rule for myself that uh, imagine I get 10 years and accepting that I could be hit by a bus tomorrow. I'm not in control of anything. This is my imaginary 10 years. I can assess how I live my day, my month, my year, not just in terms of like, did I like, will I regret today based on like, if tomorrow was my last one. Um, but like, am I moving toward something that feels really big that I could not accomplish just in a couple of days? Um, if I'm still moving toward 
the larger scale goal of time, then I can feel comfortable and confident and not worry about the fact that I haven't already done all the things I want to do. Right. Granting that, like, I might not get to do all the things I want to do. The sort of the problem of delayed gratification, which is necessary sometimes. And I... I I have reframed it. It's cognitive reappraisal is the technical term for it. I have reframed it as uh, fully successful if I make progress every day. Yeah, I, that I love that. For me, it's uh, you know I, there are going to be some hard days, but if I'm making progress toward being the person I want to like embodying the values that I most care about, then that's a good day, and I know I'll hit the pillow feeling good about myself. What I especially like about your way of looking at it is that if you check back on a day and you're like, oof, missed the mark there, regret that, it's motivating to go fix it immediately. Like wake up the next day and make sure you don't go to bed a second time, still wishing you'd done it differently. Yeah, it's uh, it's very motivating. It gives you a sense of purpose. Um, and I think it feels good to be accountable for yourself, to have... Um, you know, not discipline in the sense of like doing what other people want, but toward your own values. Yes. Uh, I have another question for you. And that is that we're talking about your burnout book, but I know you've written some books about having a more joyful sex life. And my intuition is telling me that these things are deeply connected, but I don't necessarily know how. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, the sex book, Come As You Are, actually came first. Um, And one of the things you learn when you... So Come As You Are is about the science of women's sexual well-being. And one of the main lessons when you look at the science is that the best predictor of a woman's sexual well-being, surprise, is her overall well-being. And so there's a couple of chapters in there that are not about sex at all. One of them is about like emotion processing and completing the stress response cycle because is stress like going to make your sex life more joyful and beautiful? Nope, it's totally going to hit the brakes. So you have to know how to deal with stress. Um, So when it came out in 2015, I was traveling all over America. I would talk to anyone who would listen about the science of women's sexual well-being. And this thing kept happening over and over that women would come up to me afterward and be like, yeah, all that talk about the sex science. That's great. Thank you for that. But the chapter that really changed everything for me was that one on stress and emotion processing. And I was surprised by this. And I told Amelia and she was like, yeah, no shit. Remember when you taught me that stuff and it, you know, saved my life when I was hospitalized in grad school, she said twice. She said, and that is the origin story of burnout. So it comes directly from the problem solving about how to have a more joyful sex life. That's that's yeah. somehow perfect and beautiful. Because I think it's one of those things that can only happen when we feel relaxed, safe. Good sex can only happen when we feel relaxed, safe, uh, connected, um, Yes. All of those things. There's a wonderful sex therapist and researcher named Peggy Kleinplatz who wrote a book that came out last year called Magnificent Sex. Best book title ever, right? Uh, Magnificent Sex. And uh, the way she phrases it is just safe enough. And what counts as just safe enough is going to vary from person to person and from situation to situation. But to feel fully like trusting of your partner and 
comfortable in your own skin and body and ready to explore and take risks and dare to be authentic and vulnerable in ways that feel like they're right at the edge of what you're capable of. That's extraordinary sex. That is not necessarily for just like happy, contented, like leftover pizza sex. Like I wish everyone leftover pizza sex. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But there's, there's also this other thing where you feel plugged into the universe and connected to the divine. I mean, that sounds fantastic. Um, right? You should read Magnificent Sex. It's so good. Uh, you're making me feel like, you know, we should make safe words part of work culture, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Stop everything. <laughs> yeah. So-and-so just said their safe word. We have Come to end what? the meeting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Okay. Hard no. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, when, these things that, you know, we think about in order to put some nice guardrails on how to feel safe in the bedroom, I'm just now, and probably you've thought about this more deeply, kind of seeing that a lot of those strategies are probably important in life too, that you got to get enough rest. You have to feel safe. You have to put the right boundaries on relationships so that someone is going to care for you and respect you, even if, you know, you're exploring you know very uh uh you know some crazy bdsm space or something yeah and i'm gonna say a thing which could be the start of a whole other conversation which is that the foundational skill of all of that in sex in life in your own self-care practice in your activism is adequate attunement to your own body's needs and a willingness to believe what it is telling you ah <sighs> Love that. Uh, I think you're really onto a deep truth about uh, being a human being, Emily. Oh, thanks. I hope so. Otherwise, like I am. I mean, for all I know, all the like men's right Christian people are correct, and I'm gonna be, you know, tortured in hell forever. But I will be able to look back on my life and be like, I did what felt right to me. Uh, yeah, when you have enough meaning, you know, it'll be worth it. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's no punishment you can give that would make me like, yeah, like not come off what gives me meaning in life. Exactly. Just, there is no, is. that's the measure. There is no punishment you could give me. Mm -hmm. that's, that would... that's someone else's measuring stick, not mine. Yeah. Uh, so I imagine that there are going to be a lot of listeners who like what you have to say, want to find your books, want to find you, want to find, I don't know, your social media. Can you just connect everyone who's made it this far uh, in the conversation with uh, anything you've written, you've recommended, or any ways to follow you that uh, could be um, uh, good for them? Sure. I am just barely on social media, really. Uh, e. Nagoski on Instagram. Uh, by the time this comes out, I will have a newsletter on uh, Bulletin, the new Facebook platform. It's going to be called Confidence and Joy with Emily Nagoski. So if you just search for Confidence and Joy, Emily Nagoski, you'll be able to find that. Uh, as of this recording, it doesn't yet exist, but sign in the contract today. Um, also, my sister and I make a podcast called The Feminist Survival Project. We started it in November of 2019, anticipating that 2020 was going to be kind of rough. So it was the Feminist Survival Project 2020. Oh, wow. <laughs> we did not know. 
boy, howdy. Um, and so we're continuing it. Actually, the reason I mentioned the interoception awareness of your body and willingness to believe it, one of the things we got asked most by listeners of the Feminist Survival Project was, okay, listen to my body and trust it, but how? How? And so Amelia, who is diagnosed with alexithymia, which is like a clinical inability to tune into and believe and express what her body needs, um, is creating what I think is like the first ever truly comprehensive guide of how to get started. Like if you struggle listening to your body, we're making a series of podcasts that I think are going to help people who have never yet felt like they had access to listening to their bodies. Wow. That sounds great. She's pretty amazing. Like she has totally learned from her situation and transformed her life. That is awesome. And your books, uh, Come As You Are, that's the sex one, right? Yep. Come As You Are and Burnout. And there is a Come As You Are workbook. If you're like, I don't want to read 110,000 words of affective neuroscience, Emily, no matter how many funny stories you tell, um, just skip that and go right for the Come As You Are workbook. Great, great. You've got like a... It seems like your listeners are going to be like, oh, 110,000 words of affective neuroscience and funny stories? All right. Yeah, I think we attract a, a thoughtful, reflective uh, group of people yeah. <laughs> from everything I've seen. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed talking about it. It ended up being such a, a topic that connects to so many different things. And I love that. And thank you. Thank you so much. It was fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Emily Nagoski, for joining us for this amazing episode. We'll have links to everything in the show notes. And in the meantime, be sure to release your stress. Use imagination, physical activity, crying, belly laughing, whatever it takes. And until then, we'll see you next time. 